Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come, or come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. The future. It's coming upon us. The future is coming upon us. The Lord has revealed the fact in the past, in chapter 16, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected in chapter 15, verse 21. He's laid the groundwork for discipleship in chapter 15, verses 23 through 27. We're given a sneak peek, if you will, a preview of what is going to happen. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom that was predicted in chapter 16, verse 28. There's going to be a cross, verse 21, that's going to precede the kingdom in verse 28 of chapter 16. So the transfiguration of Jesus is a sneak peek about what's going to happen in the future. It's a little tearing away, a tiny picture of what the future holds. And the Lord Jesus is going to provide some unusual experiences that will impart elements of strength and courage that you will need and I will need. You see, the disciples were walking into a future and you're walking into a future and so am I. Why are the disciples, Peter, James, and John, brought to this place at this particular time? I'm going to suggest to you that in this particular moment in time and space in the Gospel of Matthew, it's an entryway into the final moments of discipleship training. We're at the midpoint, if you will, of Christ's earthly ministry by some reckoning. Other people see from Matthew chapter 17, verse 1, to the place where he winds up in Jerusalem and he suffers and he dies. There's only six months left. I'm going to suggest to you that that's probably the more likely scenario. Jesus is facing the future. And this event's going to prove critical to Peter, who's later going to write about it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The power and the coming of our Lord Jesus, his majesty, honor, and glory. When Peter had this experience, it 
burned in his heart. It left an indelible impression. He never, ever forgot what happened at this particular moment. The Lord Jesus continues to prepare his disciples for the future. And again, some Bible scholars suggest that this event, like I said, referred to as the transfiguration, takes place in the month of Tishri. Tishri is September, October on the Jewish calendar. The reason, again, why I bring it up is because there is this profound sense of profound change that is about to take place. And for Jesus, it's going to mean his death. Wonderfully, mercifully, most of us are spared the revelation of how we're going to die. But what if you knew? What if you knew that you only had six months to live? Or what if you knew that in six months there were going to be such profound changes that you would need to make some adjustments and you probably should be making some adjustments in your life right at this very moment. And so because God wants to prepare and strengthen us for our future, I'm going to suggest to you that in this little passage of scripture, in the passage, we're going to see some elements that are going to help us in our future. In the passage, Jesus and the others are going to receive strength when they get a brief glimpse of God's glory and the glorification of Jesus. They're going to receive encouragement from Moses and Elijah in verse 3, fortitude about their spiritual experience in verse 4, strength from God's presence in verses 5 through 8, strength from the knowledge that ultimately, ultimately there's going to be a resurrection from the dead in verses 9 through 13. And so the vision begins in devotion. Look at verse 1. It says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. The journey is going to begin with rest and retreat and devotion. We know that time has passed between the events of chapter 16 and our new chapter, chapter 17. The text says so after six days. Luke 9.28 reads, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter John and James up to the mountain to pray. And some people have said, aha, I knew it. A contradiction. There it is. The Bible can't be trusted. There's the contradiction. The Bible can't possibly be true. Of course, the problem is about eight days is an idiomatic expression in the Greek language, which roughly translates about a week later. There is no contradiction, sorry. The Bible's still true. The Holy Spirit, though, clearly wants the reader to know that time has passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17. Why? Because the time has passed and they've been thinking about everything that we learned in chapter 16. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to die. They've had time to think about it. And that becomes part of the important point. They've had time to think about the prediction of Jesus regarding at least his future. Now, just by way of information, which high mountain is he talking about? Mount Tabor is the traditional place for the transfiguration, but Mount Hermon is much closer and it looms large in the back of Caesarea Philippi. Others have su suggested Mount Miron, which is north and west of the Sea of Galilee. It rises up about 4,000 feet and still within Israel proper, but the most important thing isn't the place of the mountain, it's what happens on the mountain. Why does Jesus take Peter, James, and John and not the others? We're not told. It's a private retreat. They're going to the top of the world. 
And I'm going to suggest to you that for a brief moment, as Jesus takes them to the top of the mountain, he is, he's not just taking them to a place of devotion and prayer and retreat, but he's going to give them a brief glimpse into another world. We know that because Luke says that they went up to pray. Someone has well said, you need to come apart with Jesus before you come apart. There are going to be times when you are going to need specific, personal, private time with Jesus. And by the way, there were two other times that Jesus spends quality time with his special friends. On each occasion, there was death involved. The first time was in the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum, where we read about the death of Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, verse 51. But that's where he brings Peter, James, and John. You'll remember that Jesus raises the girl from the dead. And you'll recall that the people mourned, who were mourning, mocked Jesus and ridiculed Jesus because Jesus said that the little girl was sleeping. And then he demonstrates his power over death. The second occasion is here in this passage where Jesus demonstrates his glory beyond death. The last occasion will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. The twelve are with him, but Jesus retreats a little bit further and he takes Peter, James, and John and they go with him into this place of darkness. And you'll remember in the Garden, Jesus prays the prayer, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless... Not my will, but thy will be done in Matthew chapter 26, verse 37. Peter, James, John are going to learn those personal lessons, how the, the father teaches the son and instructs the son and Jesus will submit to death. They have a glimpse of power in death and glory in death and submission to death. For the Christian, death isn't the final word. Death becomes the glorious event that precedes our victory march. Peter, James, and John are going to have to face the reality of their own mortality. By the way, later Peter is going to be told of his own death in John chapter 21, verse 18. M many of you are familiar with the passage after Jesus is risen from the dead. And, and, and once again, Peter looks at John and he says, tell me what's going to happen to him. And Jesus remembers, says, don't you worry about him. It's none of your business what happens to him. You need to be concerned about yourself. Because you're going to go into a place and you're going to go into a direction where you used to take care of yourself, but guess what? Somebody else is going to take care of you. James will be the first apostle to be killed in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. It says, then they killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was killed by Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, sometime probably between 42 and 44 AD. James will be the first to die. John will be the last to die. Early church father Tertullian said that John ended up in Rome where he was plunged unhurt into boiling oil. Kentucky Fried Apostle. But he doesn't die. The dominant tradition places him in Ephesus in Asia Minor where he's banished to the island of Patmos during the reign of Domitian. And he, again, he is released after the death of Domitian and tradition places him in Ephesus where he dies at a ripe old age during the reign of Trajan in about 98 AD. Sometimes we're given the opportunity to 
steal away, to come apart to a high mountain with Jesus in prayer and retreat and worship and fellowship. And it's during those times of prayer and personal Bible study and worship of the Lord that Jesus will often show up and he'll speak to you and he'll comfort you and he'll prepare you. Early in my life, it was those times of retreat and prayer and preparation as I would plead with the Lord, tell me about where I should go to school. Lord, tell me about who I should marry. Lord, tell me about where my life should go and the direction that, that my, my life needs to take. Devotion is a part of the preparation for the future. And I'm going to again suggest to you that God prepares us for the direction that we need to go. That devotion will often lead to vision. Look at verse 2. It says, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Every Christian's future, every truly born again, Bible-believing person who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit in your future, I guarantee you, is a vision of the glorified Jesus. You will see Jesus glorified. And I think that this is exactly what John had in mind in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when he said, Beloved, we're, now we're the children of God, and, and it has not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know this, that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You can imagine a glorified Jesus in your heart as you pray. But I'm going to suggest to you that the very real, resurrected, glorified Jesus. For those of you who know him and love him, he's going to be a part of your future. The disciples are going to get a sneak peek, a preview of the true glory of Jesus. And this transfiguration is a divine affirmation of all that Jesus has said and all that he said that he would do and that he would become. Jesus has, remember, spoken about his death and they didn't understand it in chapter 16, verse 21. He assures them that they're going to receive a great reward in chapter 16, verse 27. And they must have wondered, how is that even possible? How is it possible? Jesus, what are you talking about? You've just said something about death, and then you've just said something about reward. How in the world are we supposed to understand this? The transfiguration was meant to reveal that they were correct in believing that Jesus is the Messiah in chapter 16, verse 16 but also that there was a secure place with him in the future. That word transfigured, by the way, translates a Greek word that all of you are going to be familiar with. Metamorphothe. We get the word metamorphosis from it. For my geology friends, metamorphic. You know what that word means. It's, it's when a rock is heated to a super intensive position and then it's molded and shaped by the pressure and the heat. More of us are familiar with metamorphosis like a butterfly. When it goes from a chrysalis and it makes this incredible transformation to a butterfly, the verb itself means an outward change that comes from deep within. That's interesting. It isn't an outward change that comes from outward circumstances. It's an 
It's the transformation of the outside from something that is profound and deep within. And I think it's interesting that in Luke's gospel, Luke mentions that the transfiguration takes place in Luke chapter 9, verse 29. Luke has an image of Jesus praying. And as Jesus is praying, then right before their eyes is this miraculous, incredible, dramatic transfiguration. And for a brief moment, the real nature of Jesus shines. His face, his clothes, bright, brilliant, unlike anything from our world. The expression, white as light, expresses glory, purity, holiness. And the reason why it becomes such an important thing for each and every one of us is because that glory, that purity, that holiness was always there. It was always there. It's as if something is torn away and the reality is revealed. By the way, we're given a description of the resurrected Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. When you have a chance, you might want to peek over there. Our New Age friends love this passage. They see Jesus as a kind of proto-human, a, a kind of advanced evolutionary perfect creature. In the New Age and the occult, Jesus is viewed as an advanced evolutionary being. A kind of model that typifies everything that we could be. But what's the difference between the New Age Jesus and the New Testament Jesus? Well, the Jesus of the New Testament is, a, is the sinless Son of God. The New Testament Jesus is going to die on a cross for our sins. The New Age Jesus is a perfectly enlightened, evolved, proto-human with all understanding and perfect wisdom who recruits and rescues people not from their sin but from their ignorance. Oh, if you just had the right information that you would be fine. If you would just be able to come to grips with who you are and what you really are. And the Bible says what you really are is a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And so, we discover in the New Testament that the human problem goes way beyond ignorance. It's much deeper. Our New Age friends refuse to see the other faces of Jesus in the New Testament. They won't look at the utter agony of his face as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. They refuse to see the insulted face of Jesus in persecution in Matthew 26, 27. They refuse to look at his covered face as it's covered in spit in Mark chapter 14, verse 65, or his steadfast face that's Put in determination as he resolutely makes his way to Jerusalem. Or a face set in opposition in Luke chapter 22 verse 64. There is a glorified face that we see in this passage. But it's not the only face that's given to us in the New Testament. And then we discover that the vision includes the saints. Look at verse 3. Look at how interesting it says. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses and Elijah show up. He appears to them, the disciples, talking with him, Jesus. Now, again, this is an astonishing picture that's rich with meaning. First thing I want you to note is that the disciples recognize them. I'm going to suggest to you it isn't because they wear name tags in heaven or in glorified bodies where Moses goes, hey, here, look, here's my name tag. That's how you know it's me. 
or Elijah. That's how you know it's me. And again, it, this is one of my favorite questions that I get on my radio program. Will we know each other in heaven? My favorite answer is Spurgeon's answer. Do you think we're going to be more stupid in heaven than we are on the earth? They recognize that it is Moses and they recognize that it's Elijah. And by the way, I think the reason is because in the kingdom, we are known and we know, will I know my loved one? Will this particular person remember me or recognize me? And I think that the answer is yes. It says, again, that in verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. How many of you want to know what they were talking about? <laughs> Tough luck. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to leave you hanging. Actually, the clue is given to us in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. It's interesting. In Luke's gospel, it says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke gives us the additional information of what they were talking about. Moses and Elijah and Jesus are beginning to speak about and discuss his upcoming journey to Jerusalem. The reality of his suffering. The reality of his death. That he is going to be killed and that he's going to come back to life. And I'm going to also suggest to you the word decease has the obvious meaning not only of Jesus' impending death in Luke 9.31 when it says, who appears in glory, speaks of his decease. The word decease in the Greek language translates the Greek word exodus. Exodus. It is... The journey, the exodus that awaits him. It's the exodus from this world into another world. Moses becomes a type and a picture of the law. And Elijah, it becomes a type and a picture of the prophets. Moses and Elijah are bearing witness to the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the destiny of Jesus, the presence of Moses and the presence of Elijah as they speak about his exodus becomes proof, forever proof, that both of them are bearing witness to the reality that God has revealed to Moses and to Elijah the whole purpose of the Messiah's coming is to suffer and die and come back to life. Mark and Luke's gospel leave us with the impression that these conversations are not just superficial talk, but we're left with the impression that it is an extensive conversation. We can only imagine what might have been said. Moses has been dead for some 1,400 years at this point. Elijah has departed some 900 years earlier. But both encourage and strengthen Jesus for the ultimate journey. What does this have to do with you and me? I'm going to suggest to you once again that Moses and Elijah are still available to strengthen us for the journey. When we read Moses and when we read the prophets, it isn't just some dry historical rendition of what's happened in the past that has nothing to do with the present and nothing to do with the future. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because when you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, when you begin to plow your way through the prophets and you read the stories, you begin to understand more and more and more about God's plan, God's promises, God's future that he has for those who love him. The saints 
were preparing Jesus and the disciples for their journey. And they can prepare you for your journey. And we can prepare each other and encourage one another as we speak of the faithfulness of God to all that he's revealed. But look what happens. In verse 4, the vision and spiritual experience, then Peter answered and says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I hope you're as shocked as I am when you read this. You go, Peter, what are you doing? Are you asking the text? Peter, what are you doing? What in the world are you talking about? By the way, are Moses and Elijah talking to Peter or talking to Jesus? They're talking to Jesus. Peter doesn't seem to mind to interrupt the conversation. Can you imagine? Here's G- you, you, you can imagine it. I know you can imagine. You can see yourself in heaven. There's Jesus. There's Moses and Elijah. And you go, excuse me. Remember me? Hey. It's good that I'm here. I know what you're going to say when you get to heaven. First, you're going to check. Is that smoke I smell? Yeah, most of you are going to, you're going to go, it's true. I'm saved by grace through faith. I made it. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Peter's a part of this conversation. Peter suggests the building of three shelters or tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. A lot of scholars have speculated, well, what's he thinking? What's he thinking? Is Peter thinking about the exodus from Egypt and entry into the land, the ministry of miracles and the inauguration of the kingdom? Jesus is glorified right before Peter's eyes. Moses is glorified. Elijah is glorified. Now I want you to pause for a moment and let's give our friend Peter just the little benefit of the the doubt for just a moment. If you saw a glorified Jesus and a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah, would you be tempted to think that maybe the kingdom has come? That perhaps the kingdom has arrived? That all of a sudden this veil has been stripped away. Look what Peter says. Lord, it's good for us to be here. In what sense? We made it. We made it into the kingdom. I guarantee you the first moment that you open your eyes in heaven, you're going to go, God, I'm We made it. He's thinking we made it. This is a great spiritual experience. Does Peter want to bypass the cross? Does he want the kingdom to begin right at this moment? Has he forgotten already what Jesus said about his suffering and death and resurrection in chapter 16, verse 21? And I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes our spiritual experiences might cause us to forget some things. Don't get me wrong. Having a spiritual experience is a great thing. But a spiritual experience can't cause us to neglect or forget that once again, sometimes suffering and sometimes a cross precedes the glorious crown. Peter catches a glimpse of God's glory and Christ's rule. He sees Jesus in glory. He sees Moses and Elijah. He's having a heavenly experience and he wants to prolong the experience and who can blame him? And he wants to do something. 
He doesn't realize that this is a time for worship and adoration. The Life Application Bible Commentary offers uh, an interesting explanation that perhaps Peter wanted to provide shelters for the visiting dignitaries. And Jesus, but mistakenly puts all three, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus on equal footing in the kingdom. And if that's the case, he's still missing the point. If he wants to stay and say, the end, hey, let's call it a day right here, right now. The kingdom has come. We don't have to do anything else. But God's rescue plan is going to involve a cross. God's rescue plan is, is going to include the solution to the problem of sin. Some people wrongly, wickedly embrace what's been called plural covenants. This is the theology that suggests that Jesus is a means of salvation for the Gentiles through the cross, but that the law of Moses and the prophets provides salvation for the Jews absent the cross, apart from the cross, apart from the gospel, and nothing could be further from the truth. This is why the Bible says there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. John Corson points out that some Christians desperately try to make accommodations, build shelters for their loved ones apart from Christ. But the Apostle Peter himself will say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given whereby we must be saved. In our spiritual experiences, in our devotion, in our worship, in our adoration, whatever our spiritual experiences are and however they're meant to transform us, a spiritual experience or a transformational experience can never be disconnected from the revelation of the Bible. And that's when you know not to trust your spiritual experience. If it tells you something other than what the Bible has said about Jesus and about salvation. Our spiritual experiences are meant to transform us into people who embrace the truth about Jesus, about his love, a willingness to obey him in humility and to submit to him. Spiritual experiences never abrogate divine revelation. What does that mean? It means that if you have a spiritual experience that says that the New Testament isn't true and that Jesus didn't have to die on the cross for your sins and that none of that matters, you couldn't be more hopelessly deceived. And then we see the vision in God's presence. Look at verse 5. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. So why doesn't the voice from heaven give a shout out to Moses and Elijah? This is my beloved son. Moses is my main man. I spoke to him face to face. Elijah, I had enough affection for him that I snatched him right out of the world. Jesus, yo. Moses, yo. Elijah, yo. He doesn't do that. Why? Moses and Elijah are, are servants and disciples. But our instructions come from Jesus. Now this is what's interesting to me. The Lord God in heaven interrupts Peter's stupid suggestion. Even while Peter's trying to form his next sentence. This is perhaps the most glorious shut up I've ever seen in the, in the whole Bible. <laughs> Have you ever seen anyone more politely say, Shut up. <laughs> the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. The Lord God testifies to the identity of Jesus. Invites the disciples to listen to Jesus. 
The Lord God reminds us that there's only one credible source for information about the truth. And this is Jesus. This is not to suggest that what Moses has said or what Elijah has done is to be ignored. But what it does say is that we can politely listen to the many voices that compete for our attention. But in the end, in the end, there's only one voice that truly matters. What does Jesus have to say about me, about my life, about my future? And in verse 6 it says, And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces, and they were greatly afraid. And that's exactly what would happen if all of a sudden the ceiling split and our Father spoke from heaven. It would shake you to the core. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. I want you to think about what you're reading. The glory is gone. The heavenly vision is gone. The cloud of glory, gone. And the face of Jesus and the touch of Jesus peers down. I, imagine you're on your face. See the backdrop in the sky. You're on top of the mountain. Your face is in the dirt. You look up and you see the face of Jesus. And behind the face of Jesus is the Milky Way. There is the sky and the darkness and the stars and everything in it, and the face of Jesus, and the touch of Jesus, and the simple silhouette of Jesus touching his friends, encouraging his friends. Now remember, let's tie the two verses just very briefly together. Verse 5, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth after the Father has spoken from heaven? Get up. Don't be afraid. What if it just begins right here? What if for whatever reason you decided that maybe you don't know everything that Jesus has said or everything that Jesus wants, but he says, get up and don't be afraid. It's interesting, in verse 8 it says, When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is interesting. The communication from heaven has the effect of generating awe and fear and then leaves them with a singular voice. Jesus, get up. Don't be afraid. A singular vision. They saw Jesus only. What does that mean? Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. So what happens when you really hear from God? If it doesn't result in an experience of humility and awe and submission, if it doesn't result in a willingness to hear what Jesus has to say or to see Jesus for who he really is, then I'm going to suggest to you that it's probably no vision at all. A real vision from God and the presence of God will always result in pointing people to Jesus. And so when you are invited to believe something from someone that points you away from the gospel and away from Jesus, it should be viewed with suspicion. So the vision is over. And what's our application? We see Jesus. We believe in the law. We, we believe in the prophets. We study the law and the prophets. But now we see Moses with the lens of Jesus. We see the prophets with the lens of Jesus. We see Jesus. We serve Jesus. We're saved by Jesus. We're redeemed by Jesus. 
We're justified by Jesus, sanctified by the Holy Spirit and Jesus. We are glorified even though there is this veil. Paul knew about it. God gave him a vision of the saints in the future, seated in heavenly places. Jesus is perfect. Our imperfections remain with us. The transfiguration of Jesus reveals to the disciples what all the creatures in heaven, what they already know. Jesus is holy. Jesus is pure. Jesus is perfect. And so look at this tiny last note on the vision and the resurrection. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man is risen from the dead. Why can't they tell the vision? Because the world was still looking for a political solution. They were still looking for an economic solution. They were still looking for a religious solution to their problem, but their problem was sin. Can you imagine how much debate this vision would have generated? There were still people who hoped Jesus would throw off the chains of oppression and bring justice to a broken world just like now. More people are interested in a Jesus that will liberate them from the social and the political ills that plague our culture and our society, reluctant to come to grips with the most important issue, the problem of sin. So many people are interested in promoting their ideas rather than Jesus' message. And the resurrection is going to become the most convincing Proof of the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the destiny of his people. By the way, that's the first thing that Peter will preach after the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, verses 29 through 32, he'll preach the resurrection again in Acts chapter 10, verse 39 and 41. When Peter, from this point, after the resurrection of Jesus... Whenever anything happens, Peter will automatically say, let me tell you about Jesus who's come back to life. And in verse 10, it says, and his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah's already come and they didn't know him, but did to him whatever they wished. What does that mean? Killed him. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. I'm reminding you that they took advantage of John the Baptist. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. The prophet Malachi made it clear that Elijah would return in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. The Lord makes it clear that John the Baptist fulfills these promises in spirit. And that Elijah himself will come. He says before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the second coming. Slowly the Jews cultivated the idea that not only Elijah would come, but that he would restore all things before the Messiah comes. That, that Elijah would make the world fit for the Messiah. Unfortunately, that's reading way too much into the prophecy. The idea is that Elijah would be a mighty reformer, overturning evil, setting up a righteous kingdom. The disciples may have even thought, is this, is this it? Is this the fulfillment of the prophecy? Is this transfiguration? Is this conversation of Moses and Elijah the fulfillment of the prophecy? Jesus says, John promoted righteousness and they killed him. There's one more thing, by the way, in Peter's diary. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eye 
witnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when we heard this voice which came from heaven. When we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter didn't forget what happened to him. And he said, let me remind you of what I saw. The future. And so let me remind you about your future. You're going to need strength that comes from personal devotion in verse 1. You're going to need strength when you see a vision of God's glory. You're going to need comfort from the saints in verse 3. You can receive strength from a heavenly vision. But just remember that sometimes the vision, even though it provides you with a glimpse into the future, it won't take away the very real things that we have to deal with in the here and the now. We'll get strength from God's presence. We'll receive strength from the knowledge that no matter what, no matter what, no matter what, a glorious resurrection awaits us. And now, the journey to the cross, it begins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your love. Lord, we like everyone else, enjoy the opportunity to steal away, to have a quiet time of worship and adoration and devotion. Lord, we appreciate that there's rest and renewal for those who want it. But Lord, we pray that our spiritual experiences will never ever steer us away from the reality of what our Savior has done. A real Jesus dying and then coming back to life. And even though we may be troubled and we may be plagued and we may be inundated with all of the excuses and all of the reasons not to care about what Christ has done. But Lord, we pray that we would gather our vision and make the vision sure that a real Jesus is going to live and die and come back to life and everything is going to be different because of that. So Lord, we pray for strength, for the journey that's ahead, for the trials and difficulties that inevitably will come but we want a future where we'll trust you and submit to you in whatever that future holds. And Lord, I just pray again for that person who doesn't know you, whose heart is hard, that the darkness, they're swallowed in their heart by darkness. Lord, I pray that the, the light would shine in that dark place of their heart that they would hear the voice of Jesus they would listen to him and believe him in Jesus name amen let's stand